Revival and Israel. When did you last hear those two words in the same sentence? Some say to connect Israel with revival, you'd have to dig deep into the Old Testament. But is that really true? Just ahead on The Land and the Book, we'll discover how revival is impacting Israel in our generation. Plus, Charlie Dyer's devotional, Finish the Wall, will encourage you. And of course, we'll have plenty of time to answer your Bible questions. So join us now for The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, lifetime Middle East scholar. I'm John Geiger, and it's that time of year again, Charlie, the biblical fall feasts, the holy days upon us. It's a great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people and how they play a role in God's plans for the future and why they should matter to us as believers. Uh, You're right, John, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feasts. So they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. To sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo there and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and our faith at lifeinmessiah.org. And if you're new to the program, this opening segment takes a look at current events from the Middle East region. Our first story, Israel continues to struggle with an uptick in internal violence. Take us behind the headlines, Charlie. Help us understand what's really taking place and what can be done to reduce the violence. Yeah, and sadly, there's no single cause or focus for the violence. Some comes from the conflict between Israeli settlers and Palestinians, and it's caused by both sides. Armed Palestinians have targeted and killed Israeli civilians, including women and children. But Israeli settlers have attacked Palestinians, burning fields and crops, destroying cars and committing other acts of violence. And each side blames the other for creating the problem. Now, there's also been Arab-on-Arab violence. Much of this is gang-related, though some could also be caused by outside agitators like Iran trying to stir up anger and hostility. Over 150 Arab Israelis and Palestinians have been killed so far this year in those violent attacks, and more have been threatened. There's also been violence among Israelis between secular liberals on the left and settlers and ultra-Orthodox on the right. They've clashed over everything from judicial reform to imposing religious restrictions on when buses can run and on who should serve in the army. Now, all this tension has been magnified by the press, highlighting statements being made by leaders who ought to know better, but who speak to their followers without ever realizing what their words sound like to those on the other side. So, What can be done to reduce that violence? Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen is for all sides, liberal and conservative, Jewish and Arab, to be more civil. They can disagree without becoming disagreeable, and they can refrain from speaking in such an incendiary way. Maybe they should all memorize Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, Then, I believe the government also needs to crack down on crime and violence organized crime by Jewish and Arab gangs needs to be addressed. Those seeking to attack others simply because of their race or ethnicity or religion need to be hunted down and punished. And that needs to be true whether the person is Arab or Jewish. Finally, Israel needs to choke off the influence of Iran and its proxies, Hezbollah and Hamas, who are trying to fan the flames of hatred in the West Bank. 
Now, solving this problem won't be easy, but peace, safety, and civility are possible, even in Israel. Story number two. Yegevni Prigozhin, the head of the Russian Wagner group of mercenary soldiers, was killed in an apparent airline bombing. So what impact will Prigozhin's death have on the future of the Wagner group? Yeah, most people only know the Wagner group through their role in Ukraine, but they've also helped advance Russia's policies in Syria and Libya and several other countries in Africa. And while Prigozhin was the public face of the Wagner group, a man named Dmitry Utkin, uh, who was also killed in that airline bombing, was the head of operations. Uh, He was responsible for commanding all Wagner's military operations, and he's done so from its very beginning back in 2014. In fact, the group is named after Utkin's military call sign, Wagner, which, in an odd twist, came from the German composer Richard Wagner, who was an anti-Semite and Hitler's favorite composer. Utkin also had the Nazi SS symbol tattooed on both sides of his neck, which suggests still another affinity between him and Hitler. So what happens next for the Wagner group? Well, likely the group will continue to function with the Kremlin quietly assuming more direct control. Uh, Russia has already taken over Wagner's operations in Syria and apparently has also notified the government in eastern Libya of a change in coordination between Russia and them, and that was done prior to Prigozhin's death. Look for the Wagner group name to remain but Putin will make sure that Moscow exercises more direct control over its leadership in the future. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. These are the stories that have been unfolding throughout the Middle East region. A rock slide at the En Gedi Nature Reserve sadly killed an eight-year-old Israeli child and injured eight others. How safe is it to hike in Israel's nature reserves, Charlie? Yeah, John, this was a terrible tragedy. Uh, but to put it in perspective, over a half million people visit En Gedi's Nature Reserve every year, so statistically, it's still a very safe place to visit. Most injuries and deaths that have happened at En Gedi over the years have been caused by falls. Uh, in 2015, a woman fell to her death while walking in an area that was closed to hikers. Uh, last year, a man was killed after falling from a cliff there. But what made this tragedy so unique is that a boulder, apparently the size of a small car, broke loose and fell down on the hikers near the waterfall. What caused the boulder to dislodge? It's still being explored. It could have been the result of a mini earthquake, too small to be detected on any machines, but Engedi and the entire Dead Sea area is part of the Rift Valley at the juncture of two major tectonic plates. The boulder could also have been dislodged by earlier winter rainfall, causing a crack to form in the rock and just decided to let go at this moment. Some are trying to connect the event to global warming and the shrinking of the Dead Sea itself, but the rock came from the cliffs that are at least a half mile from the Dead Sea, so it doesn't seem that that's as likely the cause. The reality is that we may never know the exact reason the rock broke away and came crashing down when it did, but it really does serve as a good reminder that hiking, even in a national park, whether in Israel or the U.S., isn't totally risk-free. We all need to live our lives knowing that we could step into eternity at any time. Hmm. Well, let's stick with the theme of hiking for our final story. Israel continues to develop hiking and biking trails for those wanting to explore the land in a more active way. Tell us about some of the new additions to their network of trails. Well, in seeing what's being developed, John, I only wish I was 30 years younger. Uh, For those who like to hike, 
Israel has added two more sections in its national trail that allows individuals to hike between Elat in the south and Mount Hermon in the north. Uh, This is Israel's version of the Appalachian Trail in the sense that it extends the entire length of the country and could take a few months to hike completely. But it can be done in sections, so a hiker could spend a week or two walking through part of the land. And the sections just added up by Mount Hermon add a few additional days to the itinerary. Now, something a little less strenuous has been set up in Sedi Boker, uh, the kibbutz down in the wilderness of Zin, where Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, lived. The kibbutz built a new promenade that follows a walking path often taken by Ben-Gurion. It's a little over two miles in length and could be added to a one-day visit to Sedi Boker and the longer hike that's there through the Wadi Zin. And finally, there are now plans for a new hike and bike trail that will follow the route of the old Ottoman-era rail line between Jerusalem and Beit Shemesh. Abandoned train stations along the way are going to be converted into rest areas and observation posts. Uh, the change in elevation between Jerusalem and Beit Shemesh, well, that's going to make this a challenging route, especially for those walking or biking uphill. But the area is beautiful. Now, I know because I actually rode the old train down that route nearly 40 years ago. Most tourists will never see these trails, but it might be a fun trek for anyone listening who might want to experience the land in a more physical way. Charlie, I want to go back to a comment you made at the close of that story on the En tragedy. We need to be ready for eternity. Speak to that person right now who says, I'm not sure I am. What could they do to be ready to meet the Lord? Uh, the best thing they can do is to get to know the Lord now. It's, it's very simple. All they need to do is say something like uh, to God, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I, I don't think I know you. I don't know your son, but I know you love me. You sent your son to die for me to pay the penalty for my sin. So right now, Lord, I just want to stop and say, I love you. I want to have your son in my life. I want to confess my sin and turn to you. Uh, Forgive me because of what your son has already done for me. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And if somebody just prays something like that, uh, God can make a difference in their life today. And we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu the land and the book at moody.edu but you say right now I got I got some more questions about that prayer Charlie prayed that's great why not uh, talk with a friend who'll be glad to answer those questions at 888-NEED-HIM 888-NEED-HIM there's no cost no pressure at 888-NEED-HIM up next revival in Israel when did you last hear those two words in the same sentence you will as you stay with us on the land and the book Revival and Israel. Now, when was the last time you heard those two words in the same sentence? Some say to connect Israel with revival, you'd have to dig deep into the Old Testament. But is that really true? Stay tuned for an unusual conversation. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And before we talk about revival in Israel, let's talk about how you and I can show the love of Christ to a Jewish friend or neighbor right near us. So every year the calendar rolls around with all these Jewish holidays, and one of them, of course, is Passover. And I'm saying to myself, would it offend my Jewish friend if they knew that I wanted to celebrate Passover? Uh, Let's ask Eva Rydelnik, who serves with Chosen People Ministries. Would it be offensive? No, absolutely the opposite. I think that our Jewish friends would be excited, encouraged, and amazed that non-Jewish people 
who love Jesus would want to celebrate the Passover. Now, having said that, uh, I'd like to celebrate with them. What are some sensitivities? What should I be doing that say, I really get this? It's not just uh, talk from me. Right. I think one of the things we could do with our Jewish friends, and this is beyond the celebration of the Seder that we might have in our own homes, would be to send them a Passover card. It is the biggest holiday celebration on the Jewish calendar. Jewish people who are basically non-observant, they are not going to synagogue, they're not using a weekly service, Mm -hmm. they celebrate Passover. It is a family event, sort of like Thanksgiving is a family event for Christian America. People who don't go to church get together for Thanksgiving. People who don't go to synagogue get together for Passover. Mm. And we can use that as a way to say, happy Passover, have a great time with your family, enjoy that. And you know, I celebrate Passover with my family as well. And we remember all that God has done for the Jewish people in bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them into the land of promise for their redemption. And, you know, we have a a little bit of an extra additional uh, emphasis in our Passover. And they might say, what? And then you could talk about how that what Jesus did, saying that he was the Passover lamb and established a very important memorial for Passover. And all that could begin with something as simple as a card. As simple as a card. Exactly. Eva Rydelnik with Chosen People Ministries. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. As the Nazis ramped up their persecution of the Jews, the Schwartz family fled Berlin, eventually landing in New York City. Roy Schwartz was born and raised there. At the age of 13, Roy received his bar mitzvah in the Orthodox tradition. But while traveling across the country, Roy met Christians who demonstrated God's love and explained the good news of the Messiah to him. And through their kindness and prayers, he came to believe Jesus was his Messiah. Roy has been involved in almost every type of Jewish ministry since he came to faith. He's worked on college campuses, led home Bible studies, and began not one but two Messianic congregations in the Chicago area. He's currently the interim pastor of Chosen People Ministries Congregation in Manhattan, traveling there monthly and leading weekly interactive Bible studies online. Roy graduated from Moody Bible Institute. That's where I met him. And uh, he's written Where Jesus Walked. Roy is married to Joanne, and they have four daughters, ten grandchildren. It's been way too long since we've had him on the program, but welcome back to The Land and the Book, Roy. John, it's always good to be with you. Roy, as I said in the introduction of the segment, most people would not put those two words, Israel and revival, in the same sentence, at least not outside the Old Testament. What are we missing here? Well, what's happening in Israel is uh, because there is such a um, polarity between the liberals and the religious— that the Spirit of God is just moving among the liberals in Tel Aviv, and uh, young people are coming to faith. Also, the uh, many Israelis, after they serve in the armed forces, young people, one of the rites of passage, instead of going to college, they take a year off and they travel the world, and many are finding themselves staying with Christians and being exposed to the gospel as they travel the world and are engaging. And we have missionaries with Chosen People Ministries that uh, embed themselves with Israelis that are Hebrew-speaking. And uh, we have two hostels in uh, New Zealand that host Israelis. And uh, in Tel Aviv, we have a center that is just booming, is overflowing, that uh, we've had to uh, pray, and God has provided a building in one of the largest condominiums in Tel Aviv on the main street. And... uh, we were able to purchase this because our old building was just overflowing with people. We just couldn't house. We had to turn people away. It's just been amazing what's been going on. Well, why aren't we hearing more about revival in Israel if it's as amazing as you say, says the skeptic? 
Well, um, I guess because people aren't hearing, uh, you know, what's going on in Israel through Jewish ministries, uh, what's happening. I mean, Israel College of the Bible is reporting it. Uh, Chosen People Ministries is reporting it. So those are two organizations that I'm familiar with that are sharing, and not only among Jews, but among Palestinians. I mean, they're coming to faith as well, and Mm. we're finding fellowship and camaraderie, peace. And all of this is happening not in Jerusalem, but in the secular parts of Israel, Haifa, uh, Nazareth, um, Tel Aviv, and uh, Jaffa. I mean, we're... I love it. Jesus' hometown, huh? Yes, right. (laughs) Roy Schwartz was born and raised in New York City and is currently the interim pastor of Chosen People Ministries Congregation in Manhattan. Roy, if you were to take us to Israel to see the evidence of the revivals taking place, where would we visit? You've touched on some of that, but what might we expect to see? Conversations over dinner? What would it oh, look yeah. like? Oh, well, at our center, we have concerts where people, young people are looking to hang out, and uh, they're living in Tel Aviv. is like living in Manhattan. It's expensive. And so they look for free places that are cheap, and we offer free coffee and uh, and not just coffee. I mean, really good. Uh, they, um, it's like Starbucks quality stuff. <laughs> and concerts from both secular and religious that are screened by us, but are, you know, it's a happening place where people can schmooze and fellowship and, uh, and hang out and engage in conversations led by the Spirit of God that are not intimidating, but just, you know, thought-provoking. Obviously, you guys are praying about this. You're being intentional about it. But how, apart from that, do you account for the revival that is now taking place in the Holy Land? Well, it's the Spirit of God. I think we're ready for the, you know, the days of the Lord are near. Mm-hmm. I mean, there can't be any more proof that uh, the Lord is coming soon. Um, the Jesus People Movement or the Jesus Film Movement reports that uh, that there are only maybe less than, I think it's around 60 people groups that have not yet been brought the gospel in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. that's astounding. I mean, there are millions of people groups. So the gospel is being spread. And uh, one of the key elements for the second coming, and not the rapture, but the second coming, is that Israel has to be in the land. And also, there is a movement of Orthodox Jewish revival called the Lubavitch Movement. These are Jews for Judaism that are preparing young men for being, really, whether they know it or not, the 144,000. These are Jewish zealots. These are Pauls being trained for the law. And after the rapture of the church, as I understand theology, 144,000 Jewish virgins are going to be saved and are going to evangelize the world. And the Rebbe's army, I see as being those people, Orthodox Lubavitch, which are Jewish evangelists, after the rapture of the church, I think will be sealed by the Spirit of God and they will evangelize the world in the name of Jesus. Revival in Israel. That's our conversation today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined in studio by Roy Schwartz, a very good friend. Hey, do secular observers in Israel note that something is going on? If so, what's their perception? Well, there's a pushback from the Orthodox community. There's a a real fear that uh, this movement of Jewish young people coming to faith is a major problem. And so as the right-wing religious gain more and more power, they are doing all that they can to influence the interior department or that which governs polity and religion in Israel to push back and to 
endorse and look the other way in persecuting Jewish believers and Jewish evangelism. So it's an interesting dynamic what's going on. And it's like the first century. You have the liberals, the um, sinners, if you will, and you have the Pharisees. It's the same kind of stage. The Pharisees are the religious Jews, and they are outgrowing the liberals. And really, that's the crux of what's happening. Tel Aviv, where this revival is going on, are sinners who are coming to faith and understanding the freedom of the gospel, whereas the Pharisees are up in arms and are becoming a a growing, stronger movement because they are faithful to God's law and believe in reproduction. They are being fruitful and multiplying, whereas liberals are not. Mm. And so the religious are having more and more influence. And among the liberal Jews, many of them are frustrated by the craziness between left and right and the dysfunctionality, and they're crying out, what in the world is going on? And they're seeking God, and we're providing answers for them. What is the role of Scripture in all of this, Roy? Well, there's an ignorance of Scripture among Jewish people, among the Pharisees, among the Hasidim. Uh, Their focus is a trajectory that leads away from Jesus. It's tradition. It's uh, Judaism as opposed to biblical Judaism. Biblical Judaism is, well, there are two trajectories in Judaism. The Talmud of Judaism is the commentary on the Scriptures, whereas the biblical Talmud is the New Testament. And so we Jews who come to faith in Messiah understand the law through the lens of the new covenant, that the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is good, but the law is weak. And what the law could not do, God did in sending his son, the Messiah. And so we are able to explain the law rightly. And that's what liberal Jews are looking for, because they despise the religious. They despise the Orthodox, who all they do is study and want nothing to do with the protection of the country. They want to enforce their will on the liberals. And uh, it's ironic. I mean, it's like first century redone. A lot of tension, it seems to me. Oh, yeah. But it all gives an opportunity because it's, you know, if you remember our country in the 60s, the early 70s, we were at each other's throats. Uh, the church... Uh, liberals, the hippies, and the greatest revival in modern times occurred in my generation in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. You know, we just saw that movie, The Jesus Revolution, and that turned Christianity upside down. And uh, that's what's happening in Israel. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. In the studio with me is Pastor Roy Schwartz of Chosen People Ministries. Do you see this revival in Israel continuing, expanding, or dwindling and dying off? Oh, expanding. It's, uh, we're running out of space. We just tripled or two and a half times the space that we have in Tel Aviv. And uh, we think that this is just the beginning of an incredible revival. So how can listeners pray specifically for Israel's revival? Well, pray that we're able to plant congregations that will disciple and that uh, God will raise up young people to to be trained and be the leaders of the future, to manage and disciple these new believers, help them to grow in their faith. Beyond praying, how can uh, listeners step up and support uh, in other ways? Or is there anything, maybe there's nothing we can do. Well, I think supporting Jewish ministry is great. I mean, uh, you know, we need help, uh, support, prayer. I think uh, being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, uh, asking him to open the eyes of Jewish people. I mean, you know, apart from the Spirit of God, we don't understand God, the Bible. And so 
I would say if Christians would pray for that Jewish person that they know and then prepare themselves to understand that Christianity is Jewish, that this is a Jewish faith. Most Christians don't really get it that that Christianity is Jewish. For 1,500 years, we had the franchise, we Jews, and that franchise being that we were to be a light and priest mm-hmm. to the nations. And we said, you know, we don't like the Gentiles. We don't want anything to do with them. And that's why Jesus, when he came to the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and, and cried out, my house shall be a house of worship for all the nations, and you've made it into a den of thieves. I mean, we blew it. So God said, all right, I'm going to take a people who you say are not a people and make them sons of the living God. I'm going to use them to provoke you to jealousy. And so for the last 2,000 years, God gave the franchise to the Gentiles. Well, you've done the same thing. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, you know, uh, God has concluded us all unto disobedience that he might show mercy unto all. And so the church needs to understand that if they want revival, that Israel is a central part. The Jewish people are a central part of this. We, the church, Gentile Christianity, needs Jews in the body in order for them to fulfill their calling and to also enliven the church. We, we need Jews in the church because God has gifted us. And so we need to pray for that. Yeah. And I think we are simply blinded to so many critical, important truths that project Jesus, that show us Jesus. Images in the Old Testament, images that are thoroughly Jewish that we just don't get as Gentiles, apart from the very fellowship you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, lots to talk about in this uh, conversation. And you'll find more about Chosen People Ministries at our website, a link there when you head to thelandandthebook.org. Roy, we're looking forward to having you back again. Thanks. I look forward to it. All right. Coming up on the program, it's Questions and Answers with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Stick around for more right here. I love this segment here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back, by the way, if you're joining us midstream. Our host is Charlie Dyer. He's the guy you see with his Bible open. See him there? I'm John Geiger, and I'm leaning forward because I can't wait to hear how he responds with answers to the Bible questions that have come in. How did they come in? Via email, and I'll share our email address in a moment if you'd like to send us a question or two. Charlie, before we get to those questions, let's uh, acknowledge the fact that it's that time of year again. The biblical fall feasts, the holy days are upon us. A great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people, how they play a role in God's plans for the future, and why they matter for us as believers. Our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feasts, so they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. To sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and our faith at lifeinmessiah.org. 
So many questions to get to today. We'll dig right in with this one from Jackie. A few weeks ago, she says, I heard a Jewish believer teaching on Isaiah 53, and he proposed that Isaiah 53 was not written as a prophecy of what the Messiah Jesus would do in the future, but rather written from the point of view of Jews during the tribulation, looking back to what Jesus did in his first coming as they would be coming to faith. Now, I've always thought of Isaiah 53 as the ultimate prophecy of the coming Messiah, and I still believe that. I don't know how to rebuff this new theory, though. Any thoughts? Yeah, and I think the best approach is to look at Isaiah 53 in its larger context in the book. It's the last of four servant songs in Isaiah. They were designed to point to the servant's work, which was future from Isaiah's perspective. In fact, they're found in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50 and then 53. Now, I think Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 might help in this regard. The eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, and he asked if the prophet, that is, if Isaiah, was speaking about himself or someone else. Philip showed him that Isaiah was talking about Jesus, which seems to at least, I think, indirectly support the position you hold and which I hold as well. Now, one final point. I see Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2, being the outline for the second half of the whole book of Isaiah, and it divides into three nine-chapter segments. First, 40 to 48, her warfare's ended. That is, she's coming back from Babylonian captivity. 49 to 57, her iniquity's been removed. God's solution for the underlying problem of sin uh, that's been causing all her difficulties. And then 58 to 66, she's received of the Lord's hand double blessing in place of her sin. Now, in that middle section, Isaiah 53 is the hinge that explains how God will resolve the problem of sin by providing a substitute. So in all of that, I think Isaiah is pointing to the Messiah and his work in advance and telling us in the future what the Messiah would be doing. Mike asks about Matthew 24. Is this chapter where Jesus refers to the time of judgment after the rapture that has already occurred? In verses 40 and 41, you have accounts with two individuals present, with one taken and one left. Is this referring to the rapture or something afterwards? If it's not referring to the rapture, why would someone be taken? And then in verse 31, the angels gather the elect from the four corners of the wind. Is this referring to the rapture? If not, then what? Are all of the references regarding the day of the Lord speaking about when Christ Jesus will judge the earth after the rapture? Uh, Actually, a series of good questions there. So let me try and pick them up in order. I think Jesus in Matthew 24 is describing events that take place after the rapture during the tribulation period. I see several reasons for that. First, in uh, Matthew 24, 15, he specifically connects the events he's picturing with Daniel 9, 27. He describes the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And then second, he connects the events directly to Israel and the Jewish people. He says, when that happens, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then he tells them to pray that it won't happen on the Sabbath. Uh, Those two details help connect the prophecy to that future time of trouble for the Jewish people. Now, in light of that, how do I answer the other questions that you asked? Uh, Who's the one taken in verses 40 and 41? I think the one taken is being taken away in judgment. It's not the rapture but a time of judgment. Uh, In fact, I say that because of the previous verses, verses 38 and 39. uh, Jesus talks about Noah and the times of the flood, and he says the ones there were taken away, the unsaved, that is, who were taken away in the flood. Uh, And that's the comparison he's making to the future when people will be taken away in judgment when the Messiah returns. And then the reference to the angels being sent out to gather the elect, well, I, I take that to be drawn from Isaiah 27, verses 12 and 13, where God did announce he would regather his people to the land. So he's sending out his angels to gather back the Jewish people to the land of Israel. 
This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager. Your questions welcome anytime at The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Dorothy says, I'm studying the book of Ruth, and I have several questions. Was it a wrong or sinful decision to leave Bethlehem in the time of famine to go to Moab? Were Moabites welcome to live in Israel, or would Ruth have been naturally excluded from the community? And what does finding rest that Naomi speaks about so often in the context of the book actually mean? Yeah, another multi-part question. So let me try and give the three answers here. I'm not sure we can say it's a sinful decision on Elimelech's part, but the book is suggesting that everything wasn't right in the house of Israel. Uh, You remember the house of bread is what Bethlehem means. Well, it's now experiencing famine. That was one of the curses of the covenant. Uh, The first statement in the book of Ruth, in the days when the judges ruled, is intended to remind us of the words in the book of Judges that those are the days when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So uh, whether Elimelech was right to leave or not, there was famine in the house of bread, and his decision to leave ultimately cost him his life and the lives of his sons. Now, uh, in terms of Ruth, Deuteronomy 23 said, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of the descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation because of their hostility to Israel during the wilderness wandering. So in that sense, uh, Ruth likely would have experienced exclusion and prejudice in the community because she was a Moabite. Now, finding rest, uh, that initially meant finding a place of God's blessing. And Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 give the blessings and cursings of the covenant. Israel would experience God's blessing, his peace, his shalom, his rest as they obeyed God. And I think in in one sense, that's what's being pictured. In fact, in uh, chapter 3, verse 18, we see a good illustration in a more common sense. Naomi told Ruth that Boaz would not rest until the matter of who would take care of Ruth was settled. And the rest, I think there's that idea of finding that peace and contentment in his own spirit. And that's one of the themes that just does weave its way through the book of Ruth. Paul has a simple question based in Matthew 5, verse 1. Is Jesus talking to just the disciples, or is he also addressing the crowd? Yeah, and the answer is yes. Uh, In Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, it does say, the disciples came to him on the mountain, and he began to teach them. So in that sense, the message that followed was for his disciples. But it had to be more than just the inner circle, the 12. And I say that for several reasons there. He calls on the audience to enter through the narrow gate rather than the wide gate that leads to destruction. He compares those listening to him to wise men building a house on a rock or to foolish men building a house on the sand, suggesting that there were people listening who weren't saved. Finally, when he finishes speaking uh, in chapter 7, verse 28, it says the crowds, which implies a large group, were amazed at his teaching. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, the very next chapter says that when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. So what I think is happening is the disciples were those who followed Jesus. Uh, It was the 12, but it was a lot more. There were more casual disciples and followers. So as Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, it focuses on the disciples. But as the sermon goes on, we learn that it's a larger group. It includes more than just the initial group of the 12. Uh, It included a large number of others who were following Jesus. Earl wants to know, are the ethnic Jews the only group that have an opportunity to accept Jesus during the tribulation period? Or will unbelieving Gentiles also have an opportunity to be saved? Uh, I need to answer this two ways. First, those in this age who've heard and consciously reject the gospel won't have an opportunity to accept Jesus during the tribulation. And I say that based on what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2 in verses 11 and 12. He said God would send a deluding influence on those who refuse to believe the truth so they'd be condemned. But 
there is good news, and that, that is we need to balance that passage with Revelation 7. The first part of that chapter says the 144,000 Jewish witnesses will be raised up. But then after describing their selection in verses 4 to 8, in verses 9 to 14, John begins describing a great multitude, he says, from every nation and tribe and people and language before God's throne. And he's told those are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So apparently an uncountable multitude of Gentiles from around the world will come to faith during this period, though it looks like a lot of them will be martyred for their faith. Paul observes in 2 Chronicles 3.10, Solomon had two cherubim made. In chapter 5, verse 7, he placed the ark under the cherubim. So what happened to the original cherubim on the ark? Well, the original cherubim mentioned in Exodus were permanently attached to the mercy seat. That's set on top of the ark. The cherubim mentioned in 2 Chronicles, when you look at the size of them, uh, actually their combined wingspan was 30 feet. Uh, when Solomon put the Ark of the Covenant underneath those cherubim, uh, he actually put the original Ark and the original cherubim underneath those new cherubim in the Holy of Holies. Uh, so both sets of cherubim were there. Well, if you've got a question, it's welcome any old time. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie Dyer is coming back with his devotional, You Don't Want to Miss It, A Place in Scripture, A Place in the Holy Land. They come together next. Confession. I have attempted a couple of projects over the course of my life that I've just never finished. I think about a wooden windmill. I got all the pieces cut out, but never quite finished the job. You ever been there yourself? Coming up next on The Land of the Book, Charlie Dyer's devotional is titled, Finish the Wall. Where are we going, Charlie? Uh, We're heading to Nehemiah and Jerusalem. All right. Before we head there, let's head to this brief stop. It's a Holy Land experience. I love these testimonies from folks who've been to Israel and and share insights like this one. I actually recently got married, and my in-laws are from Israel. So besides visiting my in-laws, it was an awesome experience. And you end up seeing priests homes that they dug up from the time of the second temple. And you read in Matthew, I think it's Matthew chapter 2, and uh, I actually just happened to be reading that scripture while I was looking through some ruins, and I realized there was a fire pit where I was, and it hit me that Jesus was probably there at one point or another, and it was just awesome, just awesome to know that I'm exploring more of what Jesus was passionate about, the places he went. And I would encourage anyone to open their budgets and travel to Israel, especially with the land in the book, because they see the value in studying uh, the links between the Bible and the land. I love the book of Nehemiah, Charlie, and I'm looking forward to your devotional. Take it away. Ah, Thanks, John. This coming Monday is Labor Day the day when we recognize and celebrate the contributions workers have made to the United States. But in just nine days, there's another celebration of workers, though it's far less known. Now, that might be due to the fact that the initial celebration took place 2,467 years ago. A little confused? Well, then follow me as we head back to Jerusalem for the celebration of the original Labor Day on the 25th day of Elul, 445 B.C., Watch your step as we head along the inside of Jerusalem's walls. 
If OSHA had been around back then, this definitely would be considered a hard hat area. There are piles of stones and cut lumber lying about on the ground, and workers are hastily trying to haul away all the ladders, ropes, pulleys, and buckets scattered beside and on top of the new wall. They're busy cleaning up and sprucing up the area in preparation for an upcoming parade around the top of the walls to celebrate Jerusalem's grand reopening as a city with proper defenses. Nehemiah 6.15 displays the biblical calendar hanging on the wall with a very special date circled in red. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. 52 days. Don't miss the connection. In just nine days, it'll be Elul 25, the 25th day of that month. That's the day when the walls of Jerusalem were finished being rebuilt in record time of just 52 days. The coming celebration is definitely a time to pay tribute to the efforts of some very hardworking laborers. It's easy to get excited now. The wall's finished. The work's done. But less than two months ago, it hardly seemed like this time of celebration would ever come. When Nehemiah first explored the walls of Jerusalem by night, by his own account, the walls were broken down and the city's gates had been destroyed by fire. And at one point, the rubble was so deep, there wasn't even enough room for him to ride up the valley in his horse. He had to dismount and go by foot. Nehemiah summoned Jerusalem's leading nobles and officials to share what God had put on his heart. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. They agreed and the work began. But things didn't go according to plan. Judah's enemies denounced the work Nehemiah had just begun. They threatened to tell the king of Persia that Judah's leaders were planning to rebel. They also threatened to attack and kill the workers. This outside opposition was matched by discouragement from inside the partially rebuilt walls. Food was scarce, and families were going into debt just to make ends meet. The poor had been forced to mortgage their land to buy grain to feed their children and the wealthy were taking advantage of the situation to grow rich off the misfortunes of their struggling neighbors. Nehemiah faced each challenge with a strength that came from knowing he had been sent by God to accomplish this task. He assigned workers to build the walls in a way that had many repairing the section closest to their own houses. He divided the workforce so half were building while the other half stood guard against threatened attacks. He refused to be tricked into dangerous or compromising positions, and he set an example by not profiting from his position as leader. He got his hands dirty, but he kept his heart and his reputation clean. For 52 nail-biting days, the people worked, grumbled, guarded, grumbled, slept anxiously, and grumbled. If Nehemiah had fears or doubts, he didn't let them show. Instead, he was a pillar of strength, a rock of stability for the people. He led by example, made wise decisions, and openly confronted the pettiness and greed that constantly threatened to discourage the workers and bring the project to a halt. And now, after 52 days, on the 25th day of Elul, 2,467 years ago, come this September 11, the work was done. The walls were completed. Nehemiah adds a very impressive postscript in his diary for that day. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Nehemiah made sure God received the credit for the successful work. He had been a faithful servant, but the work had been done with the help of our God. Six days after the wall had been completed, Israel came together to celebrate. The date was the first day of the seventh month, 
which happens to be Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, the first of Israel's fall feasts. And the focus on this day wasn't the newly rebuilt stone walls surrounding Jerusalem. Rather, the focus was on the Rock of Ages and the solid foundation he provides in his word. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Likely this was the first time many had actually heard the word of God. Certainly hearing it read aloud, hours on end, had to have a sobering impact on the crowd. They understood why Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians, because of the people's disobedience and disregard for the Lord. These new walls offered some protection, but only if God was present within them. People began to weep when they realized the seriousness of what had happened. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The physical wall was finished, and now they were preparing their spiritual defenses, building up their walls of trust in the Lord. Now as we get ready to say goodbye to Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem and return to our own day and time, what lessons can we carry along with us to help us in our harried and hurried 21st century? Well, I see two lessons that are crucial. First, we're also engaged in spiritual battles that bring discouragement and tempt us to quit. We need to face those battles with the courage and conviction of Nehemiah. Make a commitment in your heart right now that you will never cease following God or fail to stand up for Him, no matter what the circumstances. Second, I see a close connection between what Nehemiah was able to accomplish physically and the strength he drew from God's word and from prayer. Nehemiah oriented his life by looking at his circumstances through the prism of God's word. That helped put the obstacles and threats in perspective. And he frequently paused in prayer to share the problems he was facing with God. He didn't need to carry those burdens on his own shoulders. He offloaded them to God and trusted God with the outcome. The lesson for us, focus on God's word and then take your fears and anxieties to him in prayer. As always, great insights, Charlie. Thank you so much. Hey, if it's been a while since we've heard from you, could you send us an email? Love to hear how we're connecting with you, maybe encouraging you in your own understanding of Scripture and the Holy Land. Our email address, as always, is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Time always goes too quickly when you're hanging out with us. Love your friendship and your company. Thanks for sticking around for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.